Hello, this is Tim and Sam from the Classical Music Pod coming to you today on Mozart's birthday. We've got our usual news and reviews. Plus our first ever interview. It's with tenor Hiroshi Amako. We talk Wagner, his influence on ABBA. Plus magic roundabouts and operatic divas. Tim, we are joined today in the bedroom studio by the sounds of a South London storm. It's lovely, isn't it? <laughs> it's lovely. Uh, I mean, if we were going to relocate, I've got a suggestion. We could nip over to Shostakovich's old apartment. It's for sale in St. Petersburg, and we only need 27 million rubles. How much is that in pounds? That is £310,000, which, uh, for a seven-room apartment... That strikes me as not too bad. Not too bad, We've spent too long in London, I think. Yeah. For those of us who maybe have even deeper pockets, there's £288 million being spent on the Barbican's new concert hall, possibly. This isn't settled yet, right? No, I don't think it's set in stone. But they're after £288 million of private funding for this 2,000-seat console, which would be great. I mean, hey, another concert hall is is a good thing, but perhaps one could argue that that's money that could potentially be spent in more valuable places. Considering the current music education funding crisis, there are certainly places that I think it could be more effectively spent. And that isn't actually that much money for a concert hall, if unless I'm much mistaken. For instance, Hamburg's Elbphilomonie uh, which was built a couple of years ago, ended up being £748 million, which is... A lot of a, money. A lot of money, and it, that shortfall was public money. Yeah, ended up being filled that, by public that money. was mostly funded by the public in the end. So we don't want a similar situation in Barbican. Music education is on our minds at the moment because Student Standards Minister Nick Gibbs is uh, planning on remodelling the music curriculum. Yeah, he's, he's got together this bunch of... Experts, I'm doing in inverted commas here. It works particularly well on the radio. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So these are big names in the music world that mm-hmm. look really nice on a piece of paper that Nick Gibbs sent out saying, look, yeah. we're going to pump some money into music hubs and we're going to redesign the music curriculum and Julian Lloyd Webber's going to be on the board. Hey, even I've heard of him. So the problem with this is it feels like a bit of a window dressing PR stunt, dare I say it. Ooh. 1.3 million, which is what he's promising to the hubs, if you divide that up between all of the music hubs, that's 11,000 per hub, which feels like a bit of drop in the ocean because the hub where you and I received our training in Wiltshire, that actually gets 600,000 a year from the Arts Council England. Mm. And that, incidentally, hasn't increased year on year in line with inflation. So could this be a distraction from bigger issues happening in music education at the moment? The other worrying problem about this new curriculum that's being designed is that they've Mm. actually bypassed the expert subject advisory group for music which is a a panel of legitimate experts who Mm. have worked in music education before whereas this fancy panel with Julian Lloyd Webber. I mean if you're an international cello soloist you probably don't have to do primary school music every Tuesday. Absolutely. So this week it's been announced that Bauer Media are launching a new classical music radio station. It's going to be called Scala Radio. Uh, and it's going to be fronted by Simon Mayo, is that right? Yep, uh, Angelica Bell of CBBC back in the yeah, early yeah. noughties. Oh, brilliant. 
I am also really looking forward to hearing Mark Kermode talk about classical music. He's been the Observer's film critic, and he and Simon May have been doing the Wittertainment podcast for a number of years, which I've listened to religiously. And hello to Jason. I would listen to them talk about buttering toast. They are just absolutely top-notch broadcasters. So it'd be great to hear their insights on classical music. Absolutely. I'm particularly looking forward to Goldie's classical life. He was uh, actually wicked on Maestro, that conducting reality TV program. Was he as in talented or just yeah, a good Yeah, real, real feel for the music. Good feel think, well, yeah. there we go. I'm being prejudiced. Yeah, terrible. Speaking of unfounded prejudices, researchers from Lancaster University have found that people who thought that it was terribly important what their acoustic guitars were made of were in fact barking up the wrong tree. <laughs> I know, I love this. It's a new study and it's put to rest something that has long been debated about whether the rosewood or the elm... Do I detect... Elm. Or the U makes a difference to the sound of a guitar, and it's absolute rubbish. It doesn't make any difference. Well, it, it apparently it makes a negligible difference. I'm right. doing inverted commas with my hands at the moment. Again, that's nice. We had a little exchange this week over email where I was shocked to hear that Jessica Nuccio had been fired from Rome Opera's production of Traviata. She was playing Violetta, apparently, initially, for just marking uh, her part in rehearsals. And like marking is where you would just sing it through in a very gentle way, showing where you're going to be singing to like the conductor and the orchestra, but not going hell for leather because you're saving yourself mm. for the performance a couple of days later. Uh, Alessia Vlad released a statement to the journal Musica basically explaining what happened. The rehearsal wasn't closed. It was meant for an audience of students who'd come along to see the opera, first of all. And second of all, she apparently obstinately recited the verses in a talking voice mm. after Vlad had gone to the stage and asked her gently to sing. Who knows how gently he asked her, but apparently there is a video to prove it. So immediately afterwards, he announced that she would be replaced and she verbally assaulted him, I think they described it, Ooh. and then asked to see the theatre's doctor for an ambulance and for the police. Uh, the doctor couldn't find anything wrong and then the police left the theatre quickly after having written a Do report. you mean to tell me that there's an operatic soprano out there who's a bit of a diva? Our final bit of news this week is that Tasman Little is set to retire in 2020. She's 54 and she's going to retire from all concert performances, but she's going to up her educational work and outreach. And actually just one little sad bit of news is that Michelle Legrand, the film composer, has died aged 86. And I loved playing his music as a kid. And it's one of the few things that is just still under my fingers is his piece, Brian's Song. So really fabulous career and shame he won't be putting out any more music. Sorely missed. Sam, what have you dissected for us this week? I've got a bit of an unheard gem for you this week. And I wanted to use this great piece, The String Quartet by Ruth Crawford Seeger, written in 1931 to help explain the kind of coherence and structure that, for me, make one piece of apparently impenetrable, nowadaysy plinky-plonky music a bit more pleasing to the ear than, you know, another piece. Uh, why is this a good one and others fall by the wayside? OK, great. So this is the Playground Ensemble of Denver, and thank you very much, then, for letting us use this clip.
Today is going to involve quite a challenging bit of mental imagery, but we'll get there in a second. First up, basic facts. This is the finale of a four-movement string quartet, and like many early string quartets, the kind of stuff by Mozart and Haydn, the lower three players, second violin, viola and cello, act as an accompaniment to the first violin, who's being a bit of a diva. I'd like to use the mental image of a pair of pyjamas to help explain the first layer of compositional construction. All right. Uh, You know when you pull the drawstring on one side and it gets longer and the other side gets shorter? Yeah, 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 I know. Um, Well, that's basically what's going on here. The first violin phrases are going to start short. One note and then two, played as loudly as possible. And the other side, the accompaniment side, starts long with a phrase of 20 notes, followed by a phrase of 19 notes getting slightly shorter as the first violin gets longer. By the halfway stage of the piece, our drawstrings have been reversed. The first violin has now got a long, long, long phrase of 20 notes, and the accompaniment is down to one loud note. Over the second half of the piece, this reverses and we get towards the final two phrases in the first violin and they're two notes followed by one note. Now, that's one layer of the composition. The next one is a really hard mental image. So if you can, put in your head a roundabout. That roundabout is turning, rotating, on a bigger roundabout of roundabouts. If you can handle that image, you're going to be absolutely fine. But strap yourself in, because that roundabout of roundabouts is in turn on a monster roundabout of roundabout roundabouts. All rotating. This roundabout process only really concerns the accompaniment, the lower parts, not the first violin melody. So for now, that can sit outside your head. No divas. The 20-note accompaniment phrase that we heard earlier is actually two utterances of a 10-note motif. This motif layer is our smallest, normal-sized roundabout. Each phrase, the motif rotates. Each time you get on that roundabout, you get on the next horse along. The first time we hear the motif, it goes 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. The second time, it goes 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 1. This compositional device is called thematic rotation. The third and fourth time we hear that motif, it goes 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 1, 2, and then 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 1, 2. Missing off the three, it's cut off, reducing the length of our pyjama drawstring. This is when our bigger roundabout gets involved, our roundabout of roundabouts, because the first note of each motif utterance now spells out one, two, three, four. So if you mentally zoom out a layer, that same initial motif, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, is happening on a sort of landmark scale throughout the piece, reflecting the small scale details in the large scale construction could be called A micro-macro cosmic structure.
Okay, so what about the roundabout of roundabout roundabouts? The monster roundabout. Yes, well, that's happening too on a structural scale. So we've got our motifs, our landmarks, and then the actual structure of the piece. What we've just heard up until then, the full set of landmarks, 1 to 10, is a single rotation of our biggest cog, the monster roundabout. And the next section of the piece is that whole previous paragraph heard transposed up one tone onto the second note of that initial motif. What we've finished is Monster 1, and we're starting Monster 2. You've heard Monster 1. Well, now it's Monster 2. This time, it's rotational. By the end of the movement, we've heard Monster 1, 2, 3, and 4. Okay, but not all of them. No, we haven't gone all the way through from 1 to 10. And what I really like about that sort of mechanistic process of composition, almost for, almost formulaic, is that the accompaniment could go on forever on a bigger and bigger scale with bigger and bigger roundabout cogs turning. In the written accompaniment, we're only hearing a thin slice of what's almost an eternal piece of music, uh, against which our free-spirited diva first violin struggles. This is no doubt inspired by the mechanisation of society in the US during the 1920s and 30s, but I think it's really hard not to project onto the struggles of our first violin the struggles of Ruth Crawford Seeger as a composer fighting against the sort of patriarchal world she inhabited. Those systems appeared to stretch irrevocably into the future, and despite her enormous talent, she actually produced relatively little music. Do check out the rest of that string quartet. It's a really awesome work. Composer fact file, Ruth Crawford Seeger. Born East Liverpool, Ohio. 1901. Prominent member of the composer group The Ultramoderns. First woman to receive a Guggenheim scholarship. Married her teacher, the musicologist Charles Seeger. During a creative crisis, she burned a score for a violin sonata. When asked about her current productivity, she described her recent work as composing babies. Published a collection of folk arrangements with John and Alan Lomax, which became a crucial force in the American folk revival. Three of her children, Mike, Peggy and stepson Pete, went on to become influential folk musicians. Once described a scrap of paper rustling on the pavement as having... The perfect scherzo of rhythmic variety and subtlety. lovely old recording was the opening of Act 3 to Wagner's Die Valkyrie, performed back in 1934 by the Philadelphia Orchestra under Leopold Stokowski. We were lucky enough to go and see the dress rehearsal of Die Valkyrie with the London Philharmonic Orchestra and Vladimir Jarowski, which is happening today, in fact, as we speak. Mm. Over in, in South Bank Centre. Over in South Bank Centre. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that really struck me, and this can't be a review because you can't review a rehearsal but just some of the thoughts that it brought to mind the one that really struck me seeing it live that you don't get on a disc is the sheer scale of people who sing Wagner 
Mm-hmm. Um, the wonderful tenor who was singing Siegmund... Stuart uh, Skelton. Stuart Skelton came on stage and I thought, wow, you're a big bloke. But then uh, the fella playing Hunting... Stephen Milling? Came on, who's you know, meant to even threaten Siegmund. And he completely... Like, he could have blocked out the sun. He dwarfed him, didn't he? was he? one of the biggest men I've ever seen in my life. He really reminded me of that bloke who fought David Hay, the bo- boxer, Nuri uh, Valuev, I think his name was. Um, he was like a bear. And if you're going to, like, Rex Harrison over a symphony orchestra and so oh, oh, ah, kind of stuff, but over 90 musicians playing, mm-hmm. you, maybe you just need all that resonating space. Sam, as a conductor yourself, what was it like seeing Vladimir Yurovsky rehearse and work with the orchestra? Well, I think, I mean, he's, he's got a wonderful way of communicating with people and with different people in different ways. So when it's his orchestra, he speaks, you know, as the LPOR, he speaks in this direct way and there's a relationship there and it's very frank and he can just say, we need to do that again. When it's soloist, there's just a little bit more cosseting of the language and gentleness with it. And you could see him rehearsing different people in different ways and that level of specificity, I think, is fantastic. But the skill that was particularly brought out by this Wagner is he's just a master of time. These hour-long stretches of music... We always feel like we're going at the right speed. It never feels like it's dragging. It never feels like, oh, that could have done with a bit more space. Just these little ebbs and flows. I don't know if you've heard any of the recordings by um, Furtwängler, sort of great Berlin Phil conductor, but particularly worked in German repertoire. And just that little ebbing and flowing. So every motif, every um, new theme feels like it's going at the right speed. That the, the spirit of Allegro, if that's the marking, is true for all the themes. In order for that to be achieved, each theme probably has to go at a slightly different speed in terms of beats per minute, if you're being you know, metronomic about it. But if you're being rhythmic about it, the flow between those two things, the, you know, a transition into a second subject, is just gently nudged along in that section where it's wound down for that moment. And I, I have never uh, seen Furtwängler, obviously died many years ago, but Jurovsky feels like the real heir to that tradition. So, Tim, from a compositional point of view, what sort of bells were going off in your head watching it? Well, this is the first time I'd seen a Wagner opera live, and that was very special for me. So Mm. for those who don't know about Wagner, he was an enormous influence, not just on classical music, but on the visual arts and on political writing. I mean, he's the most written-on composer of all time, despite being this hugely controversial figure for his violent anti-Semitism and his fairly acerbic nature. There's this whole subculture surrounding his legacy, his operas. Indeed, the Bayreuth Festival every year happens in Germany and plays exclusively his music. Seeing the opera start to finish made me realise the incredible power that the leitmotif has Mm. in the drama. Yeah. So... A light motif, which is, it's essentially a motif in a piece of music which corresponds to an aspect of the drama or a character or an object or a feeling that a character has. Sure, so like a love theme, a weapons theme or a person's theme. Exactly, and they have two effects. They're essentially an illusion, as I've just described, but they are also used in their transfiguration to Mm. describe things that are happening in the drama. And this is something that... Wagner was the first person to to really use as the core of the concept in his music. So you could articulate that it's not just that this character's here, but this character's in love with this weapon. Exactly. Yeah. So to exemplify what I've been talking about, here are four of the leitmotifs that Wagner used in Die Wacke. First up, we've got the love for brothers and sisters theme, which is 
controversial if you see the opera. I like that it sounds all chariots of fire on the synthesizers. I know. I thought I'd also use this as an opportunity to highlight the similarities between some of Abba's harmonic language and that of romantic Wagnerianism. Hmm. This is the sword theme. This is Sieglinder's theme. And this is the fate theme, which sounds pretty similar, I think, to the Tristan theme, which we use as the introduction to our analysis. So Wagner wasn't the first person to use this idea of a leitmotif for an idea fixé, which is what Berlioz would call it. In fact, you can look back and see examples of themes being used to represent characters in Mozart's opera or in Weber's opera. So yeah, yeah, like the music box and the magic flute, the sort of thing. With exactly. The, uh, yeah. And, but then you look at you if you look at Head of Britain, and he used mo- uh, motifs in the turn of the screw, and he would do incredibly complex things with them. He would invert mm. them and mirror them and shift them up into different keys to represent different feelings in characters in a mu- in an even more complex way. Sounds like Boppet. It is a bit like Boppet. Interview, 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 interview. to me Hiroshi Amako performing Come to Me in My Dreams by Frank Bridge with Michael Pange on the piano. Hiroshi, you're a tenor at the Hamburg State Opera studio. Could you tell us a bit about the studio and what it's like to work there? It's actually my first job, really. Mm. The kind of the, the studio, the way the studio works is uh, it's better to think of it as an apprenticeship program rather than uh, kind of educational, like something that gives nets you a degree or something at the end yeah stepping stone kind of yeah it's a the the whole idea of it is that you get experience of what it is like to work in a german opera house kind of like a grad scheme yeah yeah exactly um uh, so what happens in hamburg uh, is that we're employed for two seasons so two years 
and we take small roles that are in all the main the, the in your older performances on on stage usually it's the kind of things that uh, real blink and you miss them kind of thing sing a sentence and then you go home <laughs> um sometimes you get lucky and you have a bit of a bigger part or like uh you get full, you get fully immersed in the the day-to-day of working in an opera house the act of working certainly in a german opera house is like a it's like a real factory so i've i've heard um uh, one of the kammerzänger in um uh, what's a kammerzänger so ignorance. oh yes of course uh kammerzänger is a kind of status of of musician that's um uh, uh acknowledged in germany after a long service to to music if you're underemployed in an opera house for a certain amount of time your 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 service to to music generally is yeah. acknowledged and you are kept on kind of more permanent uh, member sure. of the place and it's mm. a it's a very high honor to be given because the contracts are quite short if they're not if, yes. you're, if you're not a camera then you are at risk of being yes cut. so um uh, aside from the guests that pop in and do you know the effect the kind of the famous singers that pop yeah. in and do things every so often you have more permanent positions that we say are the ensembles ensemble mm. which kind of their role varies from house to house but they well, they they take the bigger roles and they're on the permanent payroll of the opera house. Well, maybe sometimes not so permanent. Actually, <laughs> what is quite scary is that certainly in my experience, anyway, they're usually on kind of rolling contracts from season to season. So, for example, if there was a changing management, or uh, maybe you're not there enough. Yeah. Uh, if there's some problem or a little bit of a dispute you might be let go at the end of the season at any point. It's interesting because yeah. the Italian principal flute, I don't know, this is in Italy rather than in, in Germany. No, this is the Vienna Philharmonic. So in, mm. in Austria, you have Vienna Philharmonic, amazing orchestra, and their principal flute has just been let go. Oh. Every two years, they have to do a retrial. And, oh, wow. And I think it, it, she went after a vote, which makes it all the more by your peers. terrifying. So that that's sounds... elimination via peer. Yes, orchestras are terrifying, terrifying places for job security. So you, you're not called upon to vote on your fellow members? Oh, thank goodness, no, no. Um, though that also varies from place to place as well. I hear that in Munich that the studio have to re-audition after their first year. Wow. Um, and some people are let go. It's also yeah. a chance if you're too busy or something to yeah. go, I guess. And it's a chance day. to give your rival a cold or something, or, you know, trip them, <laughs> trip them up. In this experience you've had, you say you've had a lot of little bitty rolls and bits and pieces, but has there, have you had anything that you've really enjoyed? Or you... So I'm in a little bit of a break until show, which is Rigoletto. I'll be Borsa, which I'm very, look, very much looking forward to. That'll be my biggest role on the main stage this season. And uh, until then, you're going to be our spy in the camp for uh, the Nabucco production coming up. Right? Oh, yes, yes. Up any feeds. Yes, unfortunately, there's not much to report aside from what you already know at the moment, but uh, they're going to start rehearsing very soon. So, For those of us who weren't listening last week, shame on you. But also what Hiroshi is referring to there is that the chorus in the production of Nabucco is going to be made up of refugees. And there's also an added political dimension in that the director is having to operate by remote control uh, from Russia because he's under house arrest. Yes, so... I don't How know. How does that work? I don't know much about the details yet, but I think 
the way, well, the way that their rehearsals are going to work, so his, obviously his team is going to be there, but he can't be there himself. He is also not allowed the internet, so no streaming is possible. But Crikey. what, uh, yes, so what they're going to do, I think, is record all of their rehearsals and send them over to his lawyer. His lawyer is the only person who's allowed to be in touch with him. Yeah, and then he'll watch them all, watch all the footage and then record his directions and it goes back on the usb stick back to the house so it's going to be quite a a mammoth challenge for everyone i think it reflects quite well on them i think as a house that they haven't said oh well this is very awkward let's get someone else in no i mean this is going to make life a lot more difficult right they're they're being quite accommodating i think you He's one of the best directors around at the moment, so I think would have accommodated in any way they can, I think. The great looming beast on the horizon is this Brexit mm. malarkey. And is, it, is that something that people are talking about? Very much so. The most frustrating thing about the situation is that no one knows what's going on. So no one can prepare for any eventual outcomes of what you, we just all have to wait and see. And that is the the worst thing about this this whole palaver that that we're in you just kind of have to cross your fingers and Mm. hope for the best really (laughs) but this is i mean this is only one of the possible lives you could have been living i mean my first awareness of you hiroshi was as a violinist was it always going to be singing no no it was going to be violin until reasonably recently actually until i joined university so my violin playing is unfortunately gone down the pan um, in recent years <laughs> I'm very sorry I'm very sorry to my teachers no. it must inform the musician you are today right absolutely you know, I think stuff, but... I think for singing as well it's mm. really it's really beneficial to have learned a string instrument because there's so many parallels between you know how we phrasing and just general musicality and tuning oh yeah <laughs> yeah exactly I think I'd be there'd be some things that I'd be struggling more with if I hadn't had a kind of instrumental tuition beforehand. And, and no regrets, right? You're, you're no, not, not, absolutely. not wishing you hadn't followed that path. Instead. Absolutely. Playing violin is very hard. And, <laughs> um, uh, it's very hard, it was... and the profession of a violinist is... Um, a hats off to all, everyone who is a string player, because the, the, the road is, I think, particularly hard for professional instrumentalists and, you know, orchestras and things as a whole... It's a real, I mean, I, I hasten to say cut, cutthroat world. It's not, it's not that dramatic, but it's, it's real to break into mm. orchestral playing or, I mean, you know, let, let alone solo work is you really have to be prepared for, you know, to, to struggle through. And, and that is why kind of branding and things is, is very important. Yeah. So you have a yeah. place that can see you. The more we're talking about it, the more I need to go feel as if I'm going to need to make a website and things like that. Yeah. Well, this will go out tomorrow. Yeah. So if you get it all sorted by then. Oh, my God. People will be able to look you up. If you've liked hearing from Hiroshi, then he will be audible on... A new release coming out soon with Amici Voices, 
singing Bach's cantatas number 106 and 182, which I'm sure are good ones. But they they don't, certainly are. They don't spring to mind right now. Uh, um, Actus Tragicus and oh, Himmelskönig sei willkommen. Oh, Christ, I should... Uh, <laughs> co- no, <laughs> if, I, if I get this wrong, I will be, like, I'll be, I'll be killed by, by all my German... <laughs> Hang on. Himmelskönig sei willkommen, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> nice. That um, German yeah. GCSE put to good use. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and Amici voices are a lovely bunch of sort of ex-Trinity singers, aren't they? It's sort of if you enjoyed Trinity choir, then just hear a few. Eric Gessenwaltz. Uh, yeah. If you like, very good. Very good. Very good. Um, so we look forward to that coming out. That's on March. The March the first. March the first. So uh, look forward to hearing about that. Sam, what's coming up this week? Well, on Tuesday 29th, it's Delius's birthday, so we can mm. all celebrate that. And also there's a really interesting talk at the Royal College of Music by Nicholas McCarthy, who's the first one-handed pianist to graduate. From the Royal College of Music? From the Royal College, yeah. Also, Southbank Centre, Julia Fisher's playing the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto with the St. Petersburg Phil. They're not an orchestra you get to hear every day, so that's worth heading out for. Uh, Reading Concert Hall on Tuesday, the European Union Chamber Orchestra's playing Elgar and Purcell and the Haydn Trumpet Concerto with the English trumpeter Crispian Steele Perkins. Read into that what you will. That's a bit of an overture, isn't it, to the British there? Um, uh, On the 30th, we've got a, a nice opening and closing of Northern Music. In 1858, it was the first performance by the Halley Orchestra, and in 1969, it was the last public performance by the Beatles. Lovely. Thursday the 31st is the world premiere of Stuart McRae's Anthropocene. Does it like anthropomorphize? I'm not sure. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Anthropocene. But Anthropocene. That, look, that sounds much better. Anthropocene. It? Scottish <laughs> opera. That's up in Edinburgh. It's also Schubert's birthday. And Philip Glass is 82. Thursday. Friday the 1st, for our northern listeners, you've got Derby Cathedral, the 16 are singing Monteverdi's Vespers, and then the next day they're doing it in Peterborough. Lovely. And on Friday, down in Southwark Cathedral in London, we've got The Lost Music of Frederick Septimus Kelly, which is recited by Alex Wilson on piano. He's a really interesting figure. He was also an Olympic gold medalist rower, and he was a friend of Rupert Brooke. He was on the the ship that Rupert Brooke died on when uh, just before they fought in Gallipoli. And uh, sadly, Kelly was also killed, not in Gallipoli, but he was killed at the Somme. Wow. So uh, some undiscovered music there. On Saturday the 2nd, head down to King's Place if you want to hear the Aurora Orchestra play Anna Meredith's Origami Songs and Emily Hall's Life Cycle. They then follow that up with their lock-in series, and they're really featuring Anna Meredith in Hall 2 with some visual art by her sister as well. And then the third, Sunday the third, is an interesting day. It's the birthday of Mendelssohn, but also Gertrude Stein, hmm. Warwick Davies and Isla Fisher. Imagine that party. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. If you've enjoyed today, then do get in touch. Give us a like and a subscribe but you can also let us know what you're thinking via theclassicalpod at gmail.com. Absolutely. If there's anything that you've come across today that you want to go and check out, there's plenty of links in the description below, so have a browse. 
Yeah, and uh, please do check out our social media stuff on at ClassicalPod.